Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to Bardflies. We're going to shake things up on today's mini-sode with an interview. It's a pleasure to be joined by Elliot Cohen, the Robert E. Osgood Professor at Johns Hopkins SICE, the Arlie Burke Chair in Strategy at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, the author of numerous books, former counselor at the Department of State, and last but not least, the co-host of the podcast Shield of the Republic from the Miller Center. And of course, long time and long term friend of mine and friend of the show. Welcome, Elliot. How are you? Well, uh, thank you for that welcome. And I'm doing just fine. I'm on sabbatical this year. I'm working on a, a book about Shakespeare, which is why this is so timely. After spending a number of years as a dean, I am uh, enjoying going back to the life of a scholar. I can completely understand that. And I see you're surrounded by books currently in your study, which is always a great place to be. So my first question for you, you know, you're known to those who either have looked you up or listeners to the podcast as, as somebody we've mentioned, their thoughts on Shakespeare before, but you're known primarily in the field of military strategy, diplomatic history, national security affairs. How did you first encounter Shakespeare in your life? And then how did you re-encounter him with those themes and your background and life in Washington in mind? It's actually very timely that you asked that question. The school that I went to, which was a uh, Hebrew day school in uh, Brookline, Massachusetts, has begun doing reunions with some of the great teachers that many of us had had. Goodness, this is back in the late 60s and 70s. One of them was my English teacher, Mrs. Frey, who taught us, among other things, Julius Caesar. And so that was my first encounter with it. I hate to say it, I sort of concluded that Shakespeare is lost on teenagers, but I remember enjoying it. Over the years, you know, we would see Shakespeare, but the, the moment of the, the real re-encounter was... I don't know, maybe a decade ago or so. My wife and I have a subscription to the Folger Theater, uh, which is part of the Folger Library here in Washington. And we went to see Henry VIII, which is not performed all that often. There were, originally, there was some dispute about whether it's all Shakespeare or all John Fletcher. I think the consensus is it's either all Shakespeare or mainly Shakespeare. And there's a great soliloquy. And since I guess that you might ask something like this, I, uh, I, I'd like to impress the listeners by making them think that I'm quoting this from memory, but I'm not. So in it, Cardinal Wolsey, who's been Henry VIII's advisor, he's been uh, the uh, chancellor, is suddenly deposed by Henry. And he gives this fantastic soliloquy. Uh, so for those listening, it's in Act 3, Scene 2. And I'll just read a couple of lines and uh, speak to that. Farewell, a long farewell to all my greatness. This is the state of man. Today he puts forth the tender leaves of hopes. Tomorrow blossoms and bears his blushing honors thick upon him. The third day comes a frost, a killing frost. And then he thinks, good easy man, full surely his greatness is ripening, nips his root. And then he falls as I do. I have ventured like little wanton boys that swim on bladders this many summers in a sea of glory, but far beyond my depth. And it goes on. And I was overwhelmed by that soliloquy, which, as I said, does go on. And as you know, I like to engage my students in all kinds of things. So I printed out that speech and a, a bunch of my students had wanted to get together. So I said, tell you what, let's talk about this speech. And the, the reason why it struck me is because I said to myself, you know what? I know that guy. 
I've been living in Washington for 30 years. As you say, I've been high up in government. I've been in and out of uh, the corridors of power. And it just struck me, boy, I know people like that who've swum on a sea of glory and then pop and it's gone. And some of them becoming wise too late, which is a very Shakespearean thing. And that really engaged me. And so I began teaching a course on Shakespeare that's now turned into a book, Rough Magic, Shakespeare on Getting, Using, and Losing Power. And I've decided to write it partly because it's fun, but chiefly because I really do believe that the study of Shakespeare has an enormous amount to teach you about politics, and particularly in this day and age. So now I'm back in the Shakespearean world. So you've mentioned the book. When can we expect that coming out, by the way? I'm sure that you're uh, in media res, uh, as it were, but I'm sure listeners will want to know. So I'm planning on having the first draft done by April. Then it's up to my publisher. It'll be coming out with basic books. And I've, I've got a wonderful, very tough editor who's the president of basic books, uh, Laura Heimert. I'm very fortunate that way. And we'll see. I would be great to have it out by Christmas, but book publishing is a weird business. So I have no idea, yes. yeah, but, but I do have, yeah. I, I do have most of it written though. So I'm optimistic. Well, that's great to hear. And uh, we're looking forward to obviously reading it both James and, and myself. So that's wonderful. What's been the most enjoyable part to write thus far? Is there a particular character you focused on or a particular dilemma that's been intriguing to you as you take a step back from teaching this year and work on the book? I think in some ways it's been working through some of the ideas. I mean, there are a number of characters that I'm fascinated by. I'm drawing chiefly on the history plays. The ones, not surprisingly, I find Henry IV absolutely fascinating as a character. Henry V, who I, I am more and more convinced is a complete rat. But it's chiefly the, the ideas. And I would say that the big ideas are, first, Shakespeare uses the theatrical metaphor for understanding politics. That if you think about it, politicians are actors on a stage. They sometimes decide how to set that stage. Uh, sometimes they're also the playwrights and the directors, but sometimes those are other people. There's an audience, there are even critics. There may be multiple audiences as there were in Shakespeare's times. You know, you had to please both the gentry and the, the groundlings. And it just strikes me that understanding politics through the prism of theater is extremely powerful. The other idea, which I really try to explore fairly deeply is that character is everything. You know, I'm a, uh, I sometimes say I'm an historian trapped in a political scientist's body, which is largely true. But one of the things that the somewhat old fashioned history that I believe in teaches you is that character and contingency make a huge difference. That's frequently missing, I think, from the world of political science. It's frequently missing from our world of big data as a kind of magic tool that will open up the truth. And Shakespeare really does give you that. So that I, there, there are a whole bunch of ideas which I'm just enjoying playing with. And last thing I'll say is I'm enjoying playing the characters off each other. You know, I've a pretty good Shakespeare library. I mean, they're Shakespeare libraries can be vast. Usually the way authors tackle Shakespeare is play by play. That's not how this book works. It's taking the theme of the acquisition of power, the exercise, and departing it. And so I'm enjoying 
things like um, comparing Prospero and Lear as two rulers who decide to give up their power. And that leads you to a very close reading of the text and it's delightful. Yeah, I can, I can imagine. You also mentioned that you were teaching and that the book has its germination in your thoughts over the years paired with the teaching. I've been lucky enough to actually have been your teaching assistant on uh, one of those courses. So I wanted to ask you, and maybe we can have a bit of an interplay on this one, what has surprised you about your students encountering Shakespeare? And for our listeners, a lot of the students at Johns Hopkins Sice go on to serve in government, in the foreign policy world, either State Department, or elsewhere around the world, in the military, so on and so forth. Have there been any moments in the classroom that have really stood out to you as you've thought through Shakespeare in recent months and, and years? Well, absolutely. And first thing I should say, I've been extraordinarily fortunate having you working with me on that course. It was more partnership than uh, professor and teaching assistant. So I had several different sections. One was with a bunch of Hopkins undergraduates, freshmen, who were extremely smart. But it struck me that Shakespeare frequently did not touch them the way it touched some of the older students who, as you say, have some life experience. For me, the moment that was extraordinarily powerful was we were talking about Coriolanus. And we were talking about the scene in which Coriolanus, who's been this tremendously successful general, he wants to be consul. He will be elected consul. The only thing is the people of Rome want him to show them his wounds and he is outraged by this he's disgusted by it you know and at first blush you go well what they just want you to take off your toga and you know see the scars on your chest but actually i had a it was one of those inspired teaching moments which you come across by luck where i just looked at the students who had had that real world experiences including in iraq and afghanistan and saying has anybody ever asked you to show them your wounds? By which I'm speaking metaphorically, of course. And boy, a torrent of emotion was unleashed. And it just one of those moments which reminded me that you can learn a lot about reading Shakespeare from all the many profound and insightful people who've written about him. You can learn by watching performances for sure but you can learn by having real experience of the world, which in, you know, in certain ways I, I think I've had, and that teaches you other things. And that's, by the way, the, you know, the central reason why I'm, I feel okay writing the book. I'm, I'm not an English literature professor, but I have knocked around the world of power and I've been a Dean, which is its own micro power. And it gives you different insights, I believe, into what Shakespeare has to teach us. Yeah, so I actually wanted to bring in Coriolanus because uh, throughout Bard Flies, we've been going sequentially, roughly in order that the plays were written as far as we can discern and ascertain. And we're sort of on the back quarter right now. So we just finished Coriolanus and um, had a great discussion about it. And listeners can turn to our episode, which will immediately precede this one if you're curious. But I wanted to really bore down a little bit on that play with you because you are, I think, one of the, honestly, uh, and this is no flattery, it's just a statement of fact, one of the leading experts on civil military relations. And Coriolanus is a play where those tensions are 
very much front and center. What do you think we can learn about Coriolanus and sort of our world today where these conversations come up in Washington all the time? This is something that people in government and in the Pentagon and elsewhere are constantly thinking about and worrying about. And Coriolanus shows you a pretty stark vision of the soldier, the state, and the population. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. What can we learn today from that experience and from that play as we look around us? Well, I, th- I think you've said it. I mean, the Coriolanus is the archetypal soldier. Politically, he's unsophisticated. He's clearly a great leader. So you have to have a sense that he's somewhat damaged by the amount of violence that he's inflicted and that he has suffered. I mean, he's a warning to us because he has contempt for the people that he is defending. And Ultimately, that will lead him to commit treason. And there's a certain way in which you sympathize with him. And then there's another way in which you say, look, you know, a a state just can't tolerate having somebody who has simply has contempt for the rest of the population uh, for not serving in, in war. And I do think that's an issue that should resonate in the United States after when you've had a military that is in some ways rather isolated from society. That's on the one hand. On the other hand, one has to be a little bit careful here. The the story is set in Rome, a distressed Rome, and actually all of his Roman plays are portraying a distressed, torn, divided, sometimes corrupt city with a very distinctive set of values and, Mm -hmm. and so forth. And as you know, Shakespeare was actually quite well educated about the ancient world and he gets some things about what Rome was and whatever the United States is, we're not Rome. I mean, we're, yeah. we're something different. <laughs> Thank so, God for that. <laughs> th- indeed. So, so I think you have to, there is something suggestive about it, but you got to be careful. It's not a metaphor you want to push too far, I think. Yeah, absolutely. To dial back to something else that you were talking about, you've mentioned how the more you think about one of the other great soldier statesmen in Shakespeare, the more you think he's a fink, which is Henry V. Now, many of our listeners will say, but Henry V, he's the good guy. He's the greatest that kings can aspire to be. Give us your take on Henry V. Complete rat fink. I mean, total. Brilliant leader the makings of a king, although, as mentioned a moment, Shakespeare gets the last word on that. You know, he's extraordinarily manipulative with everybody around him. You know, from the very beginning, he's clearly using Falstaff. And of course, he will eventually abandon Falstaff in the cruelest line that a teacher can imagine, that at the very end of Henry IV, Part II, where he Falstaff is looking for a job from uh, his former student, Hal and Henry just looks at him and says, I know thee not, old man. <laughs> you know, those are the words that you dread hearing. He launches a war that he knows is unjust. Uh, he's willing to hang one of his old buddies without any kind of compunction. He goes around the camp at night. It's very interesting that scene where in Henry V, just before the Battle of Agincourt, the touch of Harry in the night. Well, we have only the chorus's word for it. And I think Shakespeare is so clever to use the chorus because we're not actually seeing Henry doing things. We're getting the chorus's view of things. He then goes in, he has this argument with a bunch of soldiers who are perfectly reasonably concerned that this is not a just war. 
And, you know, the king will be ransomed, but they won't be. They'll be chopped to pieces. And then he goes off and snivels. I mean, he has this sniveling soliloquy about how unfair it is that all these peasants sleep well while the king is keeping the kingdom's peace. Well, he's not keeping the kingdom's peace. He's just launched a war for crying out loud. And he said, well, all I've got here is ceremony, general ceremony. I mean, that's all it is to be a king. That's not much. But then, of course, he almost immediately thereafter on the day of the battle says that he is ferociously, uh, rapaciously hungry for honor. Well, come on. Uh, He seduces a young woman whose relatives he's just been slaughtering. But the thing I love about the ending of the play is Shakespeare gets the last laugh because the chorus shows up again and says, oh, you know, we haven't been able to tell you just how incredibly great this guy is, blah, 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 blah. So here's the story, all these wonderful things. Uh, and then he had this infant son and the kingdom, everything that he won fell apart. So why does Shakespeare do that to us? Why does he end with the downer? And I think it's Shakespeare's commentary on the kind of glory that Henry V sought. So Complete Laos, brilliant leader. I mean, the Agincourt speech is magnificent. That's also, by the way, completely manipulative. I mean, he's not going to be really thinking these people are his brothers. Come on. He encourages them to lie about what they did at the, on the battle. I mean, he, he's you know, he's not Coriolanus that way, right? I mean, Coriolanus would never tell those Roman soldiers, go, 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 you know, lie about what you did while fighting with Coriolanus. There's a, a great line in Auden, W.H. Auden, you know, they published these lectures he gave where he says that, <laughs> he, he says, Henry V is like a certain kind of person you encounter, a, a college president or a high government official, and you hate his guts. <laughs> <laughs> so I think Auden, who is one of my favorite commentators on Shakespeare, got him. Yeah, I know that that's well taken and uh, a great line, which of which Auden has many. So that's wonderful. I think on that note, I'd like to turn to uh, some lightning round questions for you. First is best place to see Shakespeare live. Folger Theater. I, I, say think, more. I would say any theater which has an Elizabethan stage, because I think it's uh, actually Auden makes this point. So things like Antony and Cleopatra, where there are these just bewildering scene changes are only possible on a, an Elizabethan stage where there's no scenery, really. There's not a whole lot of props. So I would say that I have not been to the globe, unfortunately, but I would say any theater that reproduces an Elizabethan stage. I love the Folger because it's small and intimate. The Shakespeare theater here in Washington is great, but it's cavernous. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I prefer the intimacy of uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Small well, stage. And certainly uh, keeping in character for a man who appreciates the classics. So that's, uh, yes. that's, that's well taken. Here's one for you. We've been going through the plays chronologically, as I've said, and I would say not all of them have been stone cold classics. There have obviously been many of them that are truly excellent and are, you know, in the all time best things written in the English language. What's the most underrated play and what's the most overrated play in your estimation? The most underrated and the most overrated? Mm-hmm. Well, first, can I just say that, I mean, he does have some real stinkers. I mean, Gentleman of Verona, you know, Love's Labor Lost, boy, you can keep those. The most 
underrated plays, I think, are the Henry VI plays. The problem being that there, it's Henry VI, part one, part two, part three. If you'd only had the good sense to have a semicolon, Henry VI, the witch must spurn, you know, Henry VI heads on pikes. I think they would get more attention. And I, I think they're quite carefully written and remarkably insightful. I'll just say one thing about that. One of the themes of the book, which I'm enjoying, is the idea that Shakespeare gives us the politics of courts. And if you think about it, any major organization has a court at the top of it. And Henry VI is great about courts. Overrated. Well, I don't particularly care for the comedies. I find Othello a little bit much to take. I mean, I Iago is a fascinating demonic character, and so he carries it, but Othello doesn't do it for me. Mm -hmm. uh, it just doesn't. I mean, can I add another category, which is the classics that really are the classics that are magnificent? Macbeth and Julius Caesar, those are perfect plays. Yeah, I think we've sort of been grappling with this as time has gone on, because there are some that you... Um like the Henry the Sixth plays are real gems, you know, in my, from my point of view. And um, James actually has a soft spot for Love's Labor's Lost, you know, of, of all things. Yeah, yeah. A, a questionable taste, questionable taste by my co-host. But I think that every once in a while, we sat down with Hamlet, sat down with Macbeth, Julius Caesar, and uh, you realize these are really the works of an inspired genius. And it's yeah. pretty hard to deny that. Which one do you think is, do you think is the most overrated? Oh, uh, the most overrated. So I will say it's hard because you get into the business of what do people know about and what are people aware of and so on and so forth. But of the ones that the serious Shakespeare fans tend to get into, I find the second part of Henry the Fourth to be a bit much for me, despite the wonderful rejection scene that you described earlier of Falstaff. But I just think that it's a little too meandering and uh, a, a lot of time wasted along the way from my point of view. You could have condensed that, Shakespeare. Well, That's there, may be, there may be some, but the final scenes between Hal and his father, because Henry IV is a fascinating fascinating character one of the things I, I was just writing the other day where when he when they're reconciled finally after hal tries to swipe the throne because they think the old man is croaked henry the fourth says something about you know i have friends and you must make them your friends but then he makes it very but but i've drawn their teeth <laughs> you know so and if you stop and think about it you realize henry the fourth has no friends <laughs> And by the way, I think that's one of the key elements, what power does to people. It means you can have no friends. Yeah. And yeah. I think Shakespeare understands that very well. Yeah. And I imagine the longer you spend at the top, the harder it gets to actually sustain a real human friendship in that, right. in that case. So, yeah. yeah. And yeah. by the way, that's why, in my view, Prospero renounces magic at the end of The Tempest. So the book's called Rough Magic. And, you know, he, if you remember, uh, uh, he ends Tempest by saying, I hear abjure this rough magic. I'll break my staff and bury it several fathoms deep and further than plummet sounds, I'll drown my book. That I did do from memory. 
And so the question, well, why does he have to do that? Why does, why does he have to, you know, he's got these great magical powers. He can summon up storms. He can bring the dead out of their graves. And I think, and I, I try to make the cases because that's the only way he can actually become a human being again. Mm-hmm. If you note at the very beginning, he can't speak to his daughter, Miranda, until he takes off his magic cloak, mm-hmm. which I think tells you something that he can have a kind of a more or less normal parental relationship but first he has to take off the magic cloak yeah that's uh we're looking forward to getting into the tempest which is truly in the 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 late masterpiece category uh tempest tempest is a magnificent magnificent play so to return on the what we call the politics lightning yeah. round uh we, we have what we call the the politics corner and the hollywood corner so i'll give you the politics corner first who is the character that you would most like to be stuck in a metaphorical foxhole in the national security council or the state department or a literal foxhole and who is the one you'd least want to serve alongside in all of shakespeare just think of the whole gamut of people that you encounter boy that's really tough and I'd give you the same answer, the same person, Henry V. <laughs> because if I was in a situation where I felt his interests aligned with mine and his worldview aligned with mine, there's nobody I'd rather have out in front. I wouldn't trust him, but I, you know, you know he'd do brilliantly. I So I have this sneaking, so that's a partial answer. I have a Sneaking affection for Cassius. I think Cassius is a realist about the world. I don't think he's ignoble at all. I think he's, of all the characters in Julius Caesar, I find him the most interesting. The one I'd be deathly afraid of being anywhere with is Iago. Iago is genuinely a sociopath. It was this great production by Patrick Page. What was it called? Here Be Villains or something like that. And, you know, and he makes the case, which I think is completely right. Iago's a sociopath. And I've known sociopaths, by the way. I've had to deal with them. And they're the kind of people who do damage with no reason whatsoever. And that's the thing that's scariest. I mean, who'd really want to be in a foxhole with Richard III? True. If, <laughs> if, if, if it was a real foxhole, Coriolanus might not be that bad. I mean, it just... He's like that sergeant major, you know, in all the classic movies who's kind of yelling at you and beating you up. And but boy, in the fight, you know, it's uh, it's like something out of a personal Wren novel, you know, the French Foreign Legion. Yes. I was going to say, I mean, who doesn't want a Lee Marvin equivalent, you know, in the trenches with you in the uh, tre- when you really right. need it? Yeah. Now, what you don't want, in my point of view, is you probably don't want, these are not the extreme examples, but you probably don't want a Falstaff on the one hand, and you also don't want a Hotspur either that's going to uh, achieve glory at the expense of the lives of a few dozen ordinary men charging across the field with him. Well, and and I think the real danger lies in having a Henry VI, who is a nice guy, who only wants good things for people. And who is a complete, total, utter disaster. (laughs) And, you know, that's part of the good thing about Shakespeare is the nice guys don't always win. That's true, which is which is a, a lesson in and of itself. So uh, two final lightning round questions for you. So the Hollywood corner, favorite film adaptation of Shakespeare and why? 
it's easy to say, but I think the, uh, and I, I have to confess, I haven't seen as many film versions of Shakespeare as I should. I would say Kenneth Branagh's Henry V, because I think he gives the youthful energy. And as I recall, he doesn't slip over one of the scenes, which I think is very important, where he just casually orders the murder of all the French prisoners. By the way, the best stage production of Shakespeare I've ever seen was again at the Folger. It was this wonderful version of Macbeth, which Teller of Penn and Teller worked on where there was an enormous amount of magic on the stage. And I'm, I'm an amateur magician, so I, I liked it for that. But I thought it really just gave a wonderful sense of the hauntedness of Macbeth without any over-the-top effects. So, yeah, I'd probably say that. Yeah, absolutely spooky play Macbeth the more and more you read it and think about it it's definitely eerie on the human level and on the supernatural level so well last question which is what is your non-Shakespearean recommendation for our listeners in books or film television what have you been watching so I'll mention a film and I'll mention a tv series so the film is you can get it on Amazon uh, Prime Video It's called The King's Choice. It's a Norwegian film with subtitles about the decision that King Hakon VII had to make between April 9th and 11th about whether or not he'd go along with a Quisling government. It was shot on scene. It's done in a very Norwegian kind of restrained way. The acting is superb. It's quite accurate, actually. And it it shows him wrestling with an extremely difficult decision and a kind that he wasn't prepared for. So the television, this will probably not appeal to the under 60 set. So you guys can turn off the podcast right now. But my wife and I have been watching, we just finished watching As Time Goes By, which was a series from the early 90s. Judy Dench and Jeffrey Palmer, fantastic, fantastic British actors. And the story is, you know, madly in love in the early 50s. She was a nurse. He was a young officer. He goes to Korea. His letter home gets mislaid. She thinks he's dropped her. He thinks she's dropped him. But they reconnect 38 years later and uh, there's romance and it's sweet. It's gentle. It's very funny. You know, there's just enough acid to make it interesting. So I would say that. And I'll I'll add a third thing, if I may, and that is just about anything with Mark Rylance in it. I think he is uh, one of the great actors of our time. And, And of course, he's a great Shakespearean as well. So I would say if it's something with Mark Rylance in it, Uh, Bridge of Spies, I thought he was great. So that's probably more than you want. No, that's perfect. And it's just the right amount. So Elliot Cohen, thank you so much for joining us today on Bard Flies. Well, I had a great time. Thank you for having me here. And that's a wrap. Thanks for tuning in to Bard Flies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can follow us at Bardflies on Twitter and drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.